Hello, I'm Imogen Watson and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the Conscious Advertising Network's open letter addressed to the chief execs of Facebook, Instagram, Google, Twitter, TikTok, Pinterest and Reddit, asking them to take action on climate misinformation. I'm joined by our media editor, Arvind Hickman, and Conscious Advertising Network's Jake Dubbins and Harriet Kingaby. They will be sharing their personal experience of COP26, which also came to a close this week. Later in this episode, Campaign's premium content editor, Nicola Merrifield, speaks to Eon's head of brand and marketing, Scott Summerfield and Rob Carter from their agency partner, Engine, to find out how a high carbon brand can shift to being sustainable and the importance of advertising to communication in this transition. Welcome, Arvind, Jake and Harriet. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Imogen. Hi. So you guys are the co-founders of CAN. Um, a, a voluntary coalition of 70 organisations set up to ensure the industry ethics catches up with the technology of modern advertising. Can you just give us, uh, our listeners, a background to the role that, I'm going to say CAN from now on, um, but obviously CAN is Conscious Advertising Network, um, and how it's developed since you sort of set up? Sure. I mean, CAN's been going for about about four years now, which is incredible. And it started out as a, a very heated breakout group at an event. Um, there was about there was about six of us in this group, and we all had uh, similar issues with the uh, the advertising industry and some of the impacts it was having. So, for example, um, I've worked in in campaigning for a very long time, and I was struggling with with uh, some of the you know some of some of the ways essentially that uh, that the the, the um, information environment that we that we get our information through was was functioning, and. The amazing thing, I think the amazing thing about, about CAN was it was a, a really actually easy thing to set up. We just kept having these great conversations with people who had great ideas. Um, and, you know, our first, our, you know, our first meeting was in, was it was in February 2018 and it's kind of grown from there. We look at, um, kind of six different, six different issues. Uh, we look at everything from hate speech and misinformation right through to children's welfare, diversity, inclusion. We also look at more traditional things like consent and anti-fraud within the advertising ecosystem. And I think, you know, we've grown from just looking just, you know, just looking at the advertising spend of our members to having greater dialogue with um with institutions and platforms within the within the advertising space so that's how this letter uh, came to be harriet what sort of organizations form can so can's actually around 150 organizations now we've had we've had a really strong year in terms of um growth and we have a really broad set of organizations um and we have everyone from civil society groups who campaign around climate change or anti-hate right through to enormous advertising agencies so Havas joined us globally um this year um and then big brands as well so you'll notice some of the signatories on the letter were organizations like um SSE and Essentially, we feel that it, this really broad church is really, really important when you're talking about real world issues. So a lot of what we do is looking at is working with civil society groups to really understand the problems and also to really understand what really good solutions look like. And we work with our advertiser members on how they can implement them. And also, you know, we foster facilitation between the two so that we can have better discussions about the impacts that our advertising is having. Now, you're both present at COP26. Um, can you share some, some of your experience of the conference and, and any key takeaways? It was uh, definitely the, the most, I was there for a week and it was the most humbling, overwhelming and emotional week of my professional life. Um, I, I was certainly the first day, the scale of it is huge. The, 
number and variety of people there. But but I think that one of the things that impacted me most the first couple of days was hearing the stories of those impacted by climate change. So because you, you know, there, there are country delegations, there are groups of indigenous communities, there are people, activists from all over the world. And I think one of the things that really struck home with me is, was the similarity of the stories that currently we are, and, and COP26, the aim was to keep 1.5 degrees in reach um, under the Paris Climate Agreement. And currently we're between 1.1 and 1.2 degrees. So hearing from communities on the front lines of climate change, we spoke to small island state delegations from Antigua, Barbuda, Jamaica, talking about, you know, sea level rises, hurricanes, displacement of people, people living, you know, in cramped conditions because of displacement of hurricanes. We talked to Paraguayan farmers, Indian farmers, farmers, cocoa farmers from Cote d'Ivoire all saying the same thing in very, very different parts of the world, saying that, you know, the rains don't come, but when they do come, they destroy everything that they've built. And so, and the, and young people don't want to go into farming. So they're questioning like, well, who's going to grow the food, for example? You know, their, their communities are being, you know, affected and in some cases devastated by climate change right now. We obviously sit in the global north in in the UK here, uh, and yes, we see it and see floods in our own country. But it's it's a very very powerful and humbling experience speaking to 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 people that are experiencing it now in their communities. In terms of COP itself, I understand that you're looking at this obviously more from you know trying to get advertisers or or, or certain platforms to do the right thing. But if you're looking at it more generally, what were your impressions about some of the major announcements and where the world is now at in trying to get to 1.5 degrees? Did you sort of leave with any any sort of hope, or what sort of sentiments did you leave leave with? I think probably for me, mixed feelings, and I'll probably like you know I think. Harriet, you'll have you've been there for a couple of weeks, so I think mixed feelings. I think that that there is absolutely universal recognition that we are in deep, deep trouble. Um, there is universal recognition that that humans are causing that. I mean, the IPCC report that came before uh, COP that said, you know, this is a unprecedented and human activity. It, it's unequivocal that human activity impacts that. So. You know that that is universally accepted. There are there have been announcements on methane. There has been announcements on on forests. There has been uh, you know announcements on coal. But one of the very you know respected bodies, uh, you know, climate analytics and and a guy called Bill Hare, who was part of the IPCC report that won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, has been looking at what the pledges and and the national determined contributions add up to, and currently we're still on track for 2.4 degrees. And bearing in mind that, you know, 1.1 to 1.2 is devastating communities now, 2.4 is catastrophic for those communities and ourselves and will mean huge migration and so on. So I think there has been progress, but we are nowhere close. Yeah, to build on that, I think... Yes, um, in the second week, we had news of particular countries derailing some of the commitments that had been made in the first week. So it was difficult. I think what and I think what we've got to understand is and what we learned from from, you know, the, the pandemic was that science 
isn't human. Science doesn't care about our feelings and, and what we think should happen. Um, it doesn't care about politics. It doesn't care about balancing. Science happens. And, you know, it's so it's 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 worrying to see this, uh, these negotiations, uh, you know, kind of not achieve what we need them to. However, on a much brighter note, I think what was incredible was to see the diversity of people there and the diverse, hear the diversity of stories around people taking action, around people, organisations, um, everybody. Um, you know, this is a global problem, but there are these incredible solutions out there, things that you would just never think of, people that, you know, are so different to the way that we live our lives doing this stuff. So for me, I think, although the negotiations were difficult at times to hear about, I think the human story of COP is incredible and just the amount of action, the amount of passion that's there. So I think it's really, I think it's really difficult. And what we can expect to hear post COP in, in, from, from a lot of groups is a sense of disappointment, a sense that we're not, we're not there. And I do agree on the, you know, the nuts and bolts. We're not there. But I would say, please don't lose hope. There are loads of passionate people out there who are doing really great stuff. And I think we've got to hold on to that. You know, there is, this is, this is doable. It requires will um, and just the incredible, you know, the incredible things that I have um, the, and stories that we heard over these two weeks um, are the things that I'm going to take away with me. And obviously you mentioned at the beginning, um, you started an open letter demanding global leaders and tech platforms to address climate misinformation. Um, and it's totally snowballed from there with over 250 signatures. Um, can you talk us through the scale of the problem and, and how the open letter came about? I think the we, we've seen figures that show just the amount of advertising money that is flowing to creators of disinformation. And those figures range from, you know, the, 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 the huge into the billions down to the millions, but that's a lot of money. The fact is that hate and misinformation have an economic model through advertising. And so the scale of the problem is huge and we are incentivizing it inadvertently, but it's happening. So, for example, um, our partners, the Global Disinformation Index, found, find that every time Joe Biden makes a, an announcement about the Green New Deal, there's huge spikes in misinformation. We saw a huge, we, we, we were part of a, um, a kind of a, a misinformation kind of war room project with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And we can just see huge amounts of misinformation pouring out of very specific outlets. And that misinformation isn't necessarily just denying the science. It's not just saying climate change is a hoax. It's actually creating, um, wrapped up in these kind of culture wars narratives where you pit two groups against each other. And that's more difficult to disprove, but it's really, really harmful, not just for the climate, but for society, because you're creating these narratives around things like elites. You're suggesting that the people we're supposed to trust to fix the problem can't be trusted. And let me tell you, there were lots of different people at COP. Yep, some of them were in suits and had a lot of privilege. There were a lot of young activists there. There were a lot of very ordinary people there who are passionate and who, who have committed their lives to doing this. It is not the case of the elites versus ordinary people, for example. And we're going to hear a lot more of that. We already know that there are particular people who've, who have found these campaigning techniques very, very uh, effective in the past for achieving their goals, but have really, I think, hurt us as a society. And they're going to try, they're going to try this around climate solutions. We already see um, a lot of, uh, a lot of this kind of attempting to either create false solutions or to say things like net zero, which is our plan to get us out of this mess, um, is going to cost, cost people a lot of money, for example, um, without doing the maths on, on actually what it will cost us if we don't act. So 
This is a big problem. It's not just about the science. It's about a group of people with vested interests who have either have investments or, or own infrastructure or, you know, kind of have a real interest in the status quo staying or have a political goal, for example, who are going to be using climate change and things like net zero as a as a bargaining chip and a campaigning tool. So we've got to get quick We've got to understand this issue much better, much quicker. And I think as advertisers, we have a huge responsibility to make sure that we're not adding fuel to the fire um, of these these bad actors and these individuals. One of the one of the purposes of the open letter is that to to coordinate a common definition for what com, what climate misinformation disinformation actually is. There is no common definition. There is no global agreement on that. We worked with twenty climate and disinformation experts on a common definition in advance of COP26. And that is part of the letter. And and the letter is also addressed to the COP26 presidency and to UNFCCC, because in the absence of a common definition, you know, platforms, media owners uh, and others are sort of working on their own to to understand, to, to define it themselves. It needs a framework, you know, with COVID, for example, you know, when the World Health Organization identified what COVID-19 misinformation looked like, then, you know, in partnership with platforms, there's then a a sort of a a level playing field of what constitutes misinformation, but also what constitutes freedom of speech. So, so there's, there's, there is a total lack of language and, and common language on this. And without defining it, how on earth do you confront it? So, so yeah, it was just important to say that the letter was addressed also to you know, the global bodies within climate that are critical in this conversation too. Well, what are the uh, three major demands that, that you have made in this letter? I think the first one is to adopt a common definition. And I think one of the things that we've been really encouraged by with this, and quite frankly, you know, this is the first COP that we've done. We did not really know what we were doing when we went, you know, it was it's, it's an overwhelming event. It's huge. And one of the things that we feel that's been amazing and, and, and it's kind of gone snowballed bigger than we thought was that the adoption of and, and the support of the open letter by the climate community. So one of the signatories was uh, a lady called Laurent Tibiana, who is who was one of the lead, uh, the key architects of the Paris Climate Agreement, for example. Um, Bill Hare, I mentioned earlier, won a Nobel Peace Prize for the IPCC um, report um you know the head of wwf's climate uh, group and ex-president of cop and environment minister for peru you know uh, manuel puga vidal supported it robert del Naja from massive attack brands agencies you know the breadth of it is is pretty huge so so in terms of you know the the demands is it's adopting the, the common definition throughout the whole ecosystem and then for um media owners and platforms to uh, write policies that reflect that uh, that definition. And we've seen some great, you know, steps in that with Google and the work that Google did globally to adopt monetization policies that um, uh, do not monetize content that denies the existence of climate change or indeed that indeed um, uh, denies uh, human humankind's influence on climate change. 
Okay, so you've, you've got Google um, who have announced a new monetization policy. Can you take us through um, Google's new policy? You've been working with them, I understand. And then also perhaps can you let our um, listeners know how receptive some of the other platforms and media owners have been towards your demands thus far? So with, with Google, we, we've been... I mean, where, where all this came from is we were part of a, a, a another UN conference that was undermined by misinformation um, called the Global Compact for Migration. And we've been working on this for the last 18 months. Um, with Google, we've been uh, working with them over the last 12 months on, on, on this particular issue. And they announced a policy which effectively means that content either in ads or on their platforms, including YouTube, won't be either monetized or ads cannot contain claims that climate change is a hoax or is a fraud or is a scam or doesn't exist or that isn't caused by by humans so it's a, it's a very clear monetization policy you can still say that on a website but you can't earn money and that's the central point with this is that you can still say what you like but you don't have an automatic right to earn money from from uh, claiming that climate change doesn't exist so with Google, that was a big step. And just to build on that, I think it's really important that we that we address the the value of definitions in this in this case. So Google's policy is all based around scientific consensus. So it's not just you know it's not just them making up a, a line. If ninety seven percent of scientists think climate change is happening and it's and it's you know man made, human made. It's now ninety nine point nine according to Cornell University. But anyway. Brilliant. Okay, so if ninety nine point nine percent of scientists are saying something is correct, then that feels like a really clear line. The definition we've put together looks not only at the science, it also looks at the solutions to the problem and it's it builds on the work that Google have already done. I think also um, we found De- definitions hugely hugely helpful so when we first started can we had a lot of conversations around freedom of speech and how we can protect freedom of speech um, whilst implementing some of these some of our hate speech uh, kind of manifestos for example and the un did loads of work on creating a definition of hate speech so that includes things like dehumanizing language and inciting violence against communities and that's a really clear red line that's been so helpful for um, you know, for for the community to understand what happens, um, what happens when something becomes harmful. And as Jake said, our um, you know our focus is all around monetized content. So we believe you can say what you like within the laws of the land, but there's no right to be paid for that speech necessarily. So obviously, Google have been the first to do this globally. Uh, I think I I sort of honestly take my hat off to them because they didn't have the international framework of um of a common definition to, before they did that but they recognize the importance of cop 26 and the, and the scale of the problem i have some sympathy with platforms that say you know it's difficult to be the arbiters of truth you know do we want big tech platforms to make decisions on on being being the arbiters of truth on on everything but i think when there is such overwhelming scientific consensus on something and there is an absence of um, either legislation or, or global frameworks defining what this means, then I think it, it is a both a moral and a commercial responsibility for platforms to step up now and say, right, this is this is now a uni- universally accepted definition. It's supported at very high levels in government, in in UNFCCC, in in, in others, and and that should be adopted. I think some platforms have been 
maybe a, a little bit slow to write it into policies because of the valid concerns about freedom of speech. But ultimately, if climate misinformation undermines climate action to get us to 1.5, then back to the point, people are already in very deep trouble. And if action is delayed by diversion, delay, denial, then that we are hurtling towards catastrophe. Yeah, I just want to pick you up on that on the point about Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, obviously, a lot of discussion and a lot of misinformation and disinformation about climate action happens on these platforms. But their business model isn't that that is necessarily, you know, they're not commercializing, um, you know, a, a post as, as such. For example, with, with the YouTube ad, you can say, well, don't sponsor a, a video that says this. Whereas on Facebook, their business model is, well, the more people that go on Facebook, the more, you know, sensational stuff, um, the more ads they can serve, which aren't dishonest. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, do, are you looking for them to do something similar to what they might have done or what they have done with COVID, where they're flagging posts that um, clearly have disinformation and saying, well, do, you know, do you know that there is other evidence that suggests climate change does exist? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that um, what we've been asking for, and similarly with our open letter on on racism and football, is is a few things really. One is absolutely to label posts much better. And again, you need a definition, you need a policy <laughs> to, that defines what that is in order to be able to label posts. I think you know the, the business model, as you said, is 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 different, and and the monetization is is not is is not the same. I would say that there is plenty of evidence of climate denial in ads as well we've looked at ads that still contain language like climate change is a hoax so there's the ad platforms that are on on these platforms but in terms of the content in terms of uh how how you confront that yeah covid is a great example i think there's a number of things platforms to do one is absolutely label uh, false and misleading information and direct more people to credible uh, authoritative scientific consensus I think there's also the question of interstitials um, to say, right, if you're writing in a post climate change is a hoax, you know, it might be that you can say, well, are you sure about that? Here's here's some reputable uh, content that shows you that you might be spreading myths or disinformation. And the other thing that we've been asking for for some time, and we think that platforms should unite behind this, is to really take a front step in uh, highlighting to users across the platforms, you know, what their policies are, uh, what they do and what they don't accept on their platforms, how how they work. Because when we all use these platforms, we don't go onto Facebook or Twitter or, or, or YouTube and go, do you know what, before using the t- Facebook today, I'll just check the policies and the community guidelines to make sure I'm not, you know, they're, they're, they're on the platform, but they're not front and centre. And Certainly, when we did the football, the racism in football, you know, thing, we were saying, well, unite as platforms, unite with the football community, and literally, you know, advertise and communicate to people, you know, what you can do, what you can't do, and what will happen if you are racist on a platform. What will happen if you know what if if you spread willfully climate disinformation. Yeah, I'm just curious whether you, I, mean, I, I don't know if you had any direct talks with some of these these platforms, uh, wh- whether you think this will be effective. Are, are you optimistic that, that we might start seeing some policy changes or or new things coming out of, of Twitter and Facebook and, and some of the other platforms that will at least flag where there's disinformation? 
So we have regular dialogue with with many of the platforms. And I think it's I think this the work from Google's really, really encouraging. And I think it sets a it sets a precedent. Many of these platforms have policies that relate to uh, human health or imminent human harm. Well, I mean, I would argue that imminent harm from climate change is is, is pretty a is a pretty big and compelling case. So I do feel that there are the structures and then, you know, kind of I think things in place. And I do feel like actually, um, you know, we have seen announcements. We just don't think that they're quite enough yet. We feel like this definition is really, really key um, because I think the definition, it shows you exactly what, uh, you know, kind of climate experts, let's not forget this definition isn't hasn't been developed just by us. It's been developed in partnership with 25 other climate expert organisations. And I think those kind of definitions, when they're backed like that, can be really helpful because, as you know, as Jake said before, platforms don't want to be the arbiters of truth. They want to know, uh, you know, they want they want legislation and expert advice on where the lines are. So I feel hopeful that the back, the, the way that this definition has been developed, the backing of it, um, the fact that we have seen movement from many of the platforms in the run up to COP, although, as we said, we want to fix the problem as opposed to kind of, you know, tidying up around the edges. So I feel like I think this is a good it's, it's a good it's a good line. It's a good conversation to have. Um, and I feel hopeful that there's 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 movement in this space. Yeah, I'd add to that and say I'm hopeful too. I think that if you look back a couple of years ago, three years ago on this, you know, that the awareness and the importance of this issue just wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, there. I think that that's changing. And I think, you know, what we've really tried to do at CAN, and CAN is an amazing group of volunteers and, and, and people across industries and so on, but it's the breadth of the coalition. And I think if you've got, you know, advertisers like SSE, like Sky, like, you know, Virgin O2, like Ben and Jerry's, you know, if you've got big agencies like Havas and you've got climate experts and so on here, I mean, for the, again, back to the racism in football open letter, we've just had support from, you know, Puma and, uh, and, and, and Thierry Henry at Web Summit, for example, for the asks that we're making of the platforms. So, so I think that, you know, it, it isn't just a bunch of sort of a couple of people in, in NGOs talking about this. These are big corporates talking the same language as NGOs, talking the same language as musicians now and footballers in, in this board to say, like, we need better standards. We need better policies. People are getting hurt. And certainly on this big issue of climate, we are nowhere near uh, where we need to be. And lastly, I guess, to, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the overwhelming nature of COP um, and just seeing firsthand from the people that it, that climate change is affecting. So while you have the platform, what would you say to advertisers and brands that are not taking climate change seriously enough? One of the biggest things for us is, is getting out of the advertising bubble. Um, I think one of the criticisms that maybe we would level at the advertising industry generally is that often advertising talks to advertising, talks to advertising, talks to advertising. And, you know, you have events with the same people you uh, and, and I don't think the voices that we heard from in, in COP, for example, are, are very much part of the conversation. So I would encourage advertisers to get out of the advertising bubble, both, you know, get involved with actually what's going on from a scientific point of view. But advertising is about storytelling, right? And, and the stories that we heard from people on the front line from all over the world were terrifying and they made you cry, you know, and, and so it, I would encourage, you know, that. And I would also say to advertisers, we're at a real inflection point now. Advertisers have huge power to tell amazing stories. 
Um, and as human beings, we have a choice as to whether or not we are going to continue to perpetuate a warming world that crashes through two degrees to 2.4 and maybe beyond through either greenwashing or obscuring the truth or, uh, or, or presenting false solutions and indeed by ignoring you know, industrial levels of misinformation or we can all get on the same page and work together as an industry because actually this industry has, I think it underestimates often the power that it has both in the storytelling ability but also how it funds and shapes our information environment. And I'd also say I saw the Purpose Disruptors, I saw Jonathan Wise release their new report at COP around advertising emissions. And they talk about actually they look at a holistic view of how advertising impacts the world. And they really highlighted the fact that, you know, 70 percent of of people globally um, want action on climate change. Now, that's a huge market. That's a huge number of people who want some help with this. Um, there's a huge opportunities in terms of the new products and the new services that are out there that are going to really, really help to make this transition. You've got people that are worried, people that want direction in you know playing their bit as well as you know influencing the, the the change that needs to be made and that feels like a massive opportunity we talk about being creative we talk about being innovative this is a huge opportunity to put that into play because what can be a more exciting challenge than uh, kind of advertising the products and services and ideas and you know movements that are going to going to be able to shift this change and i think if we start to think about it less as a bit of a bit of an inconvenience around business as usual or something that's just about you know just just about getting our own house in order I think we can really embrace this creative challenge and I would love you know I would actually love everyone to to also read that report because I thought it was fantastic Um, and it gave me lots of hope um, in a, a at a conference that could be quite emotionally challenging so let's let's do it basically Great speaking with Harriet and Jake. We're looking forward to seeing what's next for Can. Next up, as promised, my colleague Nicola will be chatting to Scott Somerville, Eon's Head of Brand and Marketing, and Rob Carter, Client Managing Director at Eon's partner agency, Engine, to find out how a high-carbon brand can shift its model to become more sustainable and how they can use advertising to communicate that change to customers. Let's get straight into it. Hi, Rob. Hi, Scott. How are you? Morning, how are you? Hi, Nicola, how are you doing? Good, thank you. So thanks both for coming on the podcast. And I wondered if we could start with um, Scott. Could you um, begin by explaining how Eon's business operation has transitioned to becoming a renewable energy company? And alongside that, how important it's been for the brand to advertise that to customers as the change has taken place? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just a little over a decade ago, I moved in-house and, and joined E.ON. And at that time, a large part of our business, not just in the UK, but across Europe, was fossil-fueled power stations. So that's generating electricity from, from coal and gas. And at that time, sort of our, our renewables operation was a you know important but, but growing part of the business, but much smaller in comparison. And of course, we had the customer business as well, as we talk about, so the supply of electricity and gas to, to folks like us and businesses, of course, as well. Now, in that sort of decade, 
decade, what's happened is the growth, brilliantly, of course, the, gr- the growth of renewables, important for, for all of us in our own lives, let, let alone for us as a company, Zeon, happened. And the economics around renewable energy changed as well, which meant that the sort of the days of cheap coal generation, obviously that's a high environmental price, but in a pure economic sense, coal was a lot cheaper and gas was cheaper. Renewables came down in price. So that meant there was a real shift in the industry. So for us corporately, we followed um, that change and the economics, as you would expect. And then ultimately, though, um, on, a, on a strategic level, I became the, the, the first of the, of the sort of larger international energy companies to take, I suppose, ultimately was quite a dramatic step, which was to completely um, divest and sell off the resulting shares in the fossil um, energy market to hold on to renewables, hold on to networks, so that the wires that connect all homes and businesses, so national grid really, as we know it in the UK, but with big operations across Europe. So we got rid of the fossil, essentially. So our, our world was customers, networks and renewable energy generation. And as that's progressed in, in later years, we're actually taking a step in terms of owning wind farms. We've built an awful lot over the years and invested billions. But now our business, especially in the UK, is concentrated on customers. Because for all of us, with climate crisis, the energy transition, that's the future. So think about solar panels at home. Your electric car is obviously as a great way to get around. It's also a battery that you can ultimately use to power your house and stuff. So that's the future for us. So for us, it's a tale of, you know, economics and business strategy. But to your second half of your question around why is that important to customers? Because society's changed. And I think, again, if I look back to my time at Eon, what was important to people then, you know, environment was something that, you know, when we did customer research, it'd be me second or third on a list. Lots of people were considerate and thought about the environment, but it didn't. But that's obviously changed over years, and I'm sure we'll get into talk about some of those things. And we've seen it ebb and flow over time, but it's definitely now become, of course, price is still important to the, um, to the customers we supply. But I say that sustainability point. So the really big shift for us was a couple of years ago now where we became a renewable electricity supplier. Now, what that means is we used to supply people with electricity from a range of different sources, again, coal and gas and so on, that would almost make up the energy that we bought to then ultimately supply our customers. And we made a decision, that, say, a couple of years ago to, um, to only supply renewable electricity to our customers at standard and at no extra cost. And again, we were the, the first at that time of, the, the what are often termed the larger suppliers, so the big six, if you will, as as, as the a traditional parlance, um, to make that shift, and that was a big big thing for us. Yeah, it's fascinating. Obviously, you've gone through this huge change, and I wondered from um, the perspective of actually producing ads, um, Rob, what's been your approach? So, Engine, your your Eon's partner agency, could you give us an insight about the decision making around how to communicate this? The first thing I'd say is it, it goes beyond just creating ads in terms of what we do for Eon. So we've had a long history with working with Eon where we've done a lot of above the line and done a lot of TV advertising. But I think what's characterised our approach in the last two or three years has been to actually try to add a layer of much more authenticity to what we've been doing and to find more imaginative ways to engage consumers in Eon's message. Because unlike a lot of the rest of the, the suppliers in the market, you know, Eon does have substantial credibility in sustainability because of the solutions, because of the investments they've made at at, at substantial cost to the business. And so we've taken a much more, I guess I could say, sort of platform-led approach. So two or three years ago, we took the view that actually in order to make sustainability interesting to people and actually to make people care about it a lot more we needed to sort of land on a topic that was close to people's hearts so one approach we've taken is to actually champion the cause 
for air pollution, for example. So we talk a lot about carbon emissions, but what a lot of people don't realise that actually the use of energy can create all sorts of other emissions that are particularly toxic. I think it's something like one in 20 people uh, one in 20 deaths is caused through air pollution. So uh, probably our most notable campaign in the last couple of years was one we did in 2019, where uh, we had a deliberate attempt to sort of engage both the media and the consumer audience. Um, we engaged the media through encouraging E.ON to publish. We started the campaign through stop publishing a white paper, which basically set out E.ON's credentials in this space talked about the vision of how to get to net zero by 2050 we actually printed the white paper on uh, paper stock that actually absorbed air pollution as well so the medium kind of was the message and it was recycled paper and whatnot that was then rapidly followed by uh, a pr activation where we believe it or not we built a 16 foot high pair of perspex lungs which we sighted on the south bank outside city hall we wired those lungs up to air pollution monitors all across London. And every time air pollution exceeded World Health Organization's safe limits, the lungs would fill with this green sort of theatrical smoke to sort of illustrate to people this is an invisible problem, but actually it's a real problem and it's affecting us all now. And we then followed that up with uh, a relatively small paid campaign, which encompassed a film, print, radio, digital advertising, influencer work, podcasts, editorial content, etc. A really broad spectrum of activity that engaged people on lots of different levels. And the results were, were astonishing, really. You know, we, I think we achieved something like 120 million reach within the first 24 hours of that campaign. And it had a dramatic impact, I should say, on not just... Um, consideration and awareness and so on but also on sales it had a massive impact on sales but the probably the most gratifying part was that it actually substantially increased the perception of eon as an environment you know having environmental considerations at the forefront and being really a, a champion of that and so spurred on by that we've done that in sort of episodic ways ever since so our most recent campaign we've followed a similar approach where we've partnered with um, a fairly well-known fashion brand scamp and dude uh, and they've helped us to create uh, a superhero cape that is made from fabric that actually can absorb air pollution and so we've uh, we did a, a piece where we gave that to children at schools in the very first week of term to try and land the point of the you know the scourge of car pollution and the school run and trying to tackle parents on that level as well again backed up by um what eon's doing about the matter of air pollution how eon solutions can help combat air pollution how if we all play our part you know we can all achieve uh, great things and actually bring about a sustainable future so long again another long-winded answer to say you know it's gone way beyond ads because actually i think what we've realized is we need to to engage people in, in a sort of quite a visceral way because, you know, no matter how you come at it, energy supply and energy companies and the energy category is a relative... I don't think Scott will mind me saying this, but it's a relatively low-interest category. When you think about your energy supply, you probably think about it for a few minutes every year. When you're making that choice on a price comparison website, you know, you want consumers to have a feeling about the brand, that they have a, that they have a, a passion for what, what we're driving at and that there is some depth and authenticity to to what Ian does you know um, we would never ever want to be in a situation where we're ever accused, accused of greenwashing for example so you know the the other aspect of what we do is working very closely with Eon regulatory affairs to make sure that every single claim every single piece of copy is 
bulletproof from uh, from that perspective. Not because we're, we have anything to hide. It's purely, purely to make sure that from a sort of comprehension and appeal and legal perspective that the things we say are as powerful as they can be. Very interesting. So you're talking about obviously yeah, these powerful messages that you're putting out. Um, and I've noticed that it, with, the, with the lungs um, campaign that there are these explicit references to the kind of damage that's being done. So I wondered how, how far, you know, you decide whether to include that kind of information in a campaign because it is it's kind of um, reminding potentially customers of the harm that's being done by energy companies essentially if you're not honest about the impact people just see it as nonsense and i think truthfully you know if i look back at this is many years ago now um but you know we were sometimes guilty of presenting a kind of sunny uplands view of and this is certainly in the energy sector but it's probably true of all sectors of kind of this alternate reality where we were you know all going to you say skip through sort of flower meadows together and all of us in our normal lives go wouldn't that be lovely but it's not my reality and i think if you think about the climate crisis again showing people that there is a path to progress is so important because we all, or many of us, thankfully most of us these days, know that we need to make changes. But the reality is that of some of the more extreme changes, there are still habits we will all have that are not conducive to that, but it doesn't mean you don't want to make that progress. And and I guess confronting the reality, that's been more powerful to us in our campaigns. If I look back again at data from a number of years ago, whereas as Eon, we would say, here's the future, but we didn't tackle what was happening in the present day, kind of ricocheted, right? It didn't resonate with people. Whereas, you know, and again, it, it's a bit cheesy, so forgive me, but you can't have the light without the dark. And so that was a really important part of not just the air pollution work that runs through everything we do now, which is to consumers ain't daft, right? Like, you know, so therefore they know what's going on we all read the papers we all know we're kind of screwed unless fingers crossed something good comes out of cop 26 at glasgow but we all need to take our action as well so by showing that impact getting it across to people that i say where it's resonated and i think the where the work that we've done together with engine has really worked is it's not doom and gloom showing that problem what it's showing is we're in a mess but there's a way out of it and I wondered, um, in terms of how yeah, customers have reacted, um, Rob, if you could say, how have they responded well to the environmental narratives you've been putting in place? And I don't know, what's, what's your view on the most successful campaign you've produced so far on this? I think they definitely have responded positively, you know, and I guess any any engagement in the debate is a healthy one. Um, I'd certainly say that the, the lungs campaign that I just mentioned was probably far and away the most sort of successful in that respect, because it... Uh, and it was successful, I think, because it was very compelling visually, very compelling sort of viscerally. That sight of the, the sort of smoke in the lungs was was powerful. As you can might imagine, we've got the case study film with a thousand Twitter <laughs> feeds showing up in terms of people commenting um, and the content that it created off the back of it was was really good. Um, you know, and from a from an agency perspective to get sort of broadcast news media coverage of it as well was really gratifying as well in terms of as, as an earned outcome from it so yeah ge- generally really positive and and likewise i should say the the capes that i mentioned the superhero capes for for all sorts of reasons to, to do with obviously their their cuteness but also the power of that message has gone down incredibly well so we've had to make thousands more capes in order to fulfill the demand that we're now getting from schools and from kids and from parents actually wanting to have those so you know there is this sort of sense that people want to engage with stuff 
what they don't want, I think, is for, for businesses like Eon to sort of wag the finger at them and to say, you need to be doing more, you need to be doing your your part. There's very much a sense of togetherness in the stuff that we've done. We can all do our our part. It, it's not being perfect, again, is, is, is important. So we're not perfect as an organisation. Many of us, whether in a house or agency in marketing, right, you know, the, the go-to example for sustainability, right, you know, the, it's, it's Patagonia, isn't it, right? And it's great that there are companies, of course, like Patagonia in the world, and should be admired for the work they do. But, you know, that that's not a reality for many of us as organisations, right? You know, that wasn't our foundation point and it's not where we've come to. You know, some, some again, if I think about my own politics and I think about Eon's fossil past, I, I get it rationally and logically, but it's not necessarily, I'm pleased, shall we say, that where we've got to as an organisation. And, I, you know, that's comfortable saying that. And our customers, I think, acknowledge that. So, again, that credibility point, you know, we've... We've got, you know, we go into hundreds of thousands of homes every week, right? Helping people with electricity meters, installing solar panels and stuff. We need to electrify that fleet of vehicles, but we've not done it yet. And again, if I think maybe back a number of years, we'd have been worried, more worried about saying, look, you know, us as sustainability championing it because we're not perfect. And I think where we've got to, but it's, it's, you see it with lots of organizations is you don't need to be perfect, but you've, de- you can't, you can't front your way out of it. So as Rob says, it's that credibility point's important. So we are clear about the areas we need to improve. But just in the same way that, you know, I'm sure most of us at home, certainly, there'll be the steps you all take at home. But there'll be the times, you know, that say you've forgotten your reusable coffee cup. You know, again, my cross to bear is I'd still probably go and buy a coffee in a you know paper cup that day if I'd forgotten. I won't let it go by. It's not say, a sh- you know, I could do better and I will endeavour to do better. But you know, I think that's fairly human. So that's been a big bit of bringing it into our campaigns is actually knowing that us not being perfect, again, a bit cheesy, but it makes us makes it more relatable, right? It's just more normal um, for most people. And that's what's made the work more powerful. And I think Engine really, in fairness to, to, to Rob and, and, and the team, really helped us get through that. And that's it's that almost reassurance as an organisation, especially in a sector where you are sometimes rightly criticised, but, you know, under scrutiny a lot of the time from, from politics through to the press and your own customers. With customers kind of, um, you know, appreciating the work that you're doing creatively, I wondered, you know, they see, they see the transparency that, you know, you're providing, but has it actually resulted in Eon gaining more customers is has that been the impact yeah so i mean the the test of all of the, of, of this work is you know across a number of factors so um obviously you know retention rates engagement cross sell you know as to talk about you know we're we're predominantly an energy supply company with growing business in terms of where we work with other businesses with with city organizations across the board helping them with their their zero carbon strategies and indeed as i say the electric vehicle charging point solar panels battery so right across the board we've seen a positive impact of the campaign and because it's not just an acquisition campaign or it's not just you know in another area it is about shifting the brand so it is a long-term project for us so changing consumer behaviors does seem to be the next thing that everyone's talking about in adland and i wondered Rob, more widely, from your perspective, how far you feel that an agency can actually influence a client in doing that and trying to put out messages that will change the way consumers are acting? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think it's very dependent on the category and the kind of client that you're talking to, because what what I don't think we'd ever want to do as an agency is necessarily encourage brands that uh, brands to sort of enter this space and talk sustainably if if that authenticity isn't there or if there's a risk that actually that does come across 
as greenwashing, you know. So I think it's horses for courses to a degree. So I think if a brand has something to say in this space, what we'd we'd obviously want to encourage it, but I think we'd want to make sure that they didn't then fall foul of, you know, uh, regulation and particularly looking ahead. You know, the, the CMA next year is obviously going to be enforcing. Uh, some fairly significant rules uh, in this space and I think um, it's at your peril if you decide to sort of start talking about sustainability and what you're doing and so on without necessarily the backup or you're saying one thing with the left hand but the right hand's up to something else you know that there needs to be a complete um, completely tight story there because first you wouldn't want necessarily accused of greenwashing at best but also you wouldn't want to fall foul of any legislation either so i think it's with eyes open that we'd be encouraging brands to, to move into the space to try and engage people and then move consumer behavior so you know it, it's a, it's it's a tricky question to answer without sort of being specific about types of categories but i think um we are however receiving a lot of briefs and tenders and so on where you know our sustainability credentials as an agency are are being questioned not you know and being investigated and people want to know how sustainable are you as an agency um, before they'll pass work to us so in a way the boot tends to be a little bit on the other foot you know in that sense so um, unfortunately for us we've taken a, a whole range of different measures to be able to to respond to that and to respond to that positively as a client you want to demand things as rob set out you know through your procurement process all the rest of it of course but actually the other side of it as well is i think you know certainly we've been pushed in as a marketing department to make sure we are you know smarter better and being as sustainable as we can be just to add to that, you know, I guess from our point of view, we're, we're pushing against an open door with Eon because of the work that we all want to do collectively and the result we want to achieve. Uh, without naming names, it, you know, it's it's not always the case with some clients. You know, I've been discussing the ad green levy with other other clients and it's sort of fairly sort of laid back reaction to it. It's sort of, oh, well, we've got tight budgets. We're not going to, you know, maybe, 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 which is surprising, you know, considering the climate at the moment and the the, the zeitgeist at the moment. So, you know, it, it definitely is horses for courses in that respect. Well, thank you both very much for talking to us about everything that you've been doing. It's been fascinating to hear both the agency side and the client side. So, yeah, I wish you both best of luck. Thank you, Nicola. Thanks for uh, inviting us. Great, thank you. Sadly, that's all we've got time for. But thanks for joining us, Nicola, Scott, Rob, Arvind, Jake and Harriet for this special on COP and climate action. In our next episode, we will take another deep and entertaining dive into Christmas ads. So please stay tuned for that. Please do visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletters so you can stay up to date with everything that's going on in Adland. Thanks for joining us on behalf of Campaign's team. Until next time, goodbye.